today we continue our series on Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And today we come to one of the craziest, wildest, maybe most breathtaking events uh, apart from the crucifixion and resurrection in Jesus' entire ministry. Because today we come to the transfiguration of Jesus. That momentary, supernatural transformation of Jesus into his pre-incarnate, pre-incarnate glory. Now the glory of God is a mega theme in the Bible. We will look at a bunch of different passages today that get at this. And understanding it, understanding the glory of God will help us to appreciate the magnificence of what's happening in our passage. So what I want to do is take some time before we look at our passage to kind of trace and line out this theme of the glory of God in the Bible. But there's another reason I want to do that. And that is we have a problem. We are people that are routinely glory-starved because we're glory amnesiacs. I mean, life looms large, we're busy, things are coming at us all the time, and God, if we're not careful, becomes small. And along the way, we lose sight of the glory of God. I mean, we got to close this deal, we got to close that deal, we got to be here, we got to be there, we got to get the kids here, we got to get the, the kids there. And along the way, we have this tendency to forget about God, to leave God behind. And that, in spite of the fact that there are hundreds and hundreds of references to the glory of God in the Bible, and routinely we get glimpses of the glory of God throughout the scriptures. Now, when we talk about the glory of God, the glory of God is the splendor and the supremacy of God. Sometimes in the Bible, as we'll see today, it also refers to the radiant, visible manifestation of the character of God, the, the majesty of God. And sometimes it refers to the honor of God, the holiness of God, the, the purity of God. And let me give you a couple examples. Let's go back to the beginning of the nation of Israel in the book of Exodus. God, in order to establish his authority and his preeminence, manifested his glory, we are told, in a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. And he did that as Israel was fleeing Egypt and in the wilderness, and God does this to lead Israel into the promised land. Now let me put up a passage here from Exodus 13. Look at this. By the day, or by day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar. Now notice it's God in a pillar. God went ahead of them. The Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Now you don't realize this, but this is the very first GPS and it's a supernatural one at that. But really, this is about the revelation of the presence and the glory of God. Now, a little later in the book of Exodus, Moses receives the Ten Commandments a second time. 
and he's up on Mount Sinai. He's up on this mount. He's in the presence of God, face to face with the glory of God. There's all sorts of clouds and thunder and lightning going on. And Moses comes down the mountain. And in Exodus chapter 34, we are told that Moses' face radiated the glory of God because he had been in the presence of God. So look at this. And when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony, the Ten Commandments, in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. But when Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, that his face was radiant, and man, you know what? They were afraid. It was an alien-like experience. What's happened to Moses? Now, go back to your camping days with me in your mind. And let's say you're young. Because when I was young and I, and I would go camping or I was around a, 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 a campfire, I loved to take a long stick and stick it in the fire. And then you pull the stick out of the fire. But as parents, there's one thing we tell our kids when they pull these long sticks out of the fire when the end of the stick is on fire not to do. And what's that? Don't touch the stick. Don't touch the fire. Right? Right? Yeah, right. Okay, just want to clarify that so we don't try this experiment and somebody gets hurt. But when you pull that stick out of the fire and the end of the stick is still on fire, it's still on fire because it's been in the presence of the fire and that stick is radiating the presence and the glory of the fire. And that's Moses here. He's been in the presence of God and he is radiating uh, the glory of God. And furthermore, this is a, a, a picture of exactly what Jesus Christ does in our lives. He saves us, he transforms us, he gives us the Holy Spirit. We are made alive in Christ so we can radiate the glory of Christ. So people will see in our loves the love of Christ, in our acts of love, the goodness of Christ, the grace of Christ, in our acts of goodness and grace. And the issue, frankly, is some of you need to get your stick back in the fire. Let's go on. A little further in the Old Testament, there's instructions to build the tabernacle, then there's instructions to build the temple, and what do we discover? Sure enough, God shows up and he fills the tabernacle and then the temple with his glory. So let's look at an example of this relative to the temple. Second Chronicles chapter 7. When Solomon, at the dedication of the temple, finished praying, fire came down from heaven, consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and here's our term, here's the concept again, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priest could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. And the passage goes on and tells us all of Israel immediately falls down on their faces because they see the supernatural fire. They see the manifestation of God revealed in the glory of God. Now note here that the fire consumes the sacrifice. That is not insignificant because that points to and shows us that God, in order to be present, must deal with sin. Sin must be dealt with. There must be a sacrifice pointing to how God will ultimately 
work with his son in putting him to death as the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. And the glory of God coming down here in the temple among the people of God, filling the temple of God, anticipates, points to how Jesus will come down from heaven and dwell among us. And by his spirit, fill us. Which is exactly, by the way, what John says in John chapter 1 and verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory of the one and only. This theme is all over the Bible. It's a mega theme of the Bible. Now years go by and we come to the prophets in the Old Testament and God periodically reveals his glory to the prophets. So say Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah and I in chapter 6 has this incredible vision of angels and the glory of God and there's smokes and there's flashing and he sees these seraphs and he hears the angels singing the angels um, speaking and what do the angels say holy 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 is the Lord God Almighty the whole earth is filled with his glory glory 150 years later the prophet Daniel is given another vision of the glory of God. Only this time, Daniel's vision is of what we know as the second coming of Christ when Jesus will return in glory. Still future for us, but way back in the Old Testament, Daniel had this vision of the glory of God. Look at how he describes it. In my vision at night, I looked. And there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence, and he was given authority. And here's our word. Glory. Glory. When Jesus comes again, he will come in glory. So from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, glory the glory of God is one of the mega themes of the Bible. But over time, Israel forgot about God's glory. And Israel became collectively a glory amnesiac and embraced the surrounding gods and goddesses of the nations. And Israel turned her back on the one true God. And Israel lapsed into idolatry and lapsed into sin and lapsed into unbelief. And the temple was destroyed. The nation was overrun. Most of the Jews were sent into exile. And with a few exceptions, the revelation of God through the prophets ceased. And there's a name for this. It's the Hebrew word Ichabod. And it means the glory of God has departed. And for hundreds of years, the sad story of Israel was Ichabod. No more glory. It's horrible. It's horrific to lose sight of the glory of God. And when you care more about your desires than God's, you become a glory amnesiac. 
And we put ourselves, we put our families, and we put our nations at risk. And that's what happened to Israel. But God is a God of grace. And one night, on a rugged hill just south of Jerusalem, just outside of Bethlehem, as these shepherds were living out in their fields, uh, keeping watch over their sheep, an angel and the glory of God reappeared. And so we read in Luke chapter 2 these amazing words. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Now, we're familiar with that, but what we lose sight of is that for centuries the glory of God had disappeared. And suddenly, with the angel, the glory of God has reappeared in Israel. And the angel goes on to announce the birth of Jesus. And after the angel announces the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 2, the heavens are pulled back, and we are told hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of angels appear, saying, glory to God in the highest. And out of nowhere, I, I, I mean, out of nowhere, and because God is a God of grace, the glory of God has reappeared in the birth of a baby named Jesus. Been withdrawn, reappeared. Now please, we do not make God glorious. God is glorious whether we see him or not. God is glorious whether we believe it or not. But nowhere is the glory of God more manifest or more vividly manifested, I should say, than in his son. Because Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 tells us Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Now, 2,000 years later, here we are. And even today, in spite of the advent of Jesus Christ, uh, the testimony of the New Testament, the accessibility of the New Testament, I mean, it's just a couple of clicks away on our phones. We still have this tendency to lose sight of the glory of God, to, to walk away from the glory of God, to ignore the glory of God. Uh, especially when life gets hard, especially when God takes us through difficult periods and we're confused and we're bewildered. And that is exactly what is going on in the disciples' lives when we come to our passage in Mark chapter 9 and the transfiguration. So if you haven't done so, turn to Mark chapter 9 and verse 1. Now, 30 years have gone by since the angels appeared to the shepherds, since the glory of God was first manifest in Jesus. And Jesus here in Mark chapter 9 is about two-thirds of the way through his earthly ministry. This ministry of miracles and healings, all manifestations of the glory of God. His ministry of teaching and, and, and disciple-making, other aspects of the glory of God. But Jesus, at the end of Mark chapter 8, has just dropped 
two bombs on the disciples. And their world, in a matter of minutes, has been turned upside down and inside out. Because if you go back, as I mentioned last week, to Mark chapter 8 and verse 31, Jesus, for the very first time, reveals to his disciples that he must suffer, he must be rejected, and he must die. And the disciples, they had no categories for that. Because the anticipated Messiah in Israel was a conquering king. A political persona who would come and vanquish the Romans and restore Israel uh, to, to the Jews. And so when Israel and the disciples thought about the Messiah, they thought about politics and they thought about power. But in Mark chapter 8 and verse 31, Jesus describes something new, something different a new and a different kind of glory, the glory of the cross. And then, to add insult to injury, in verse 34, he tells the disciples, they too must deny themselves, they too must take up their cross, and they too must follow him. So here, when we come to Mark chapter 9 and verse 1, this air, the oxygen between Jesus and the disciples is thick with confusion thick with despair, thick with bewilderment. As a matter of fact, it's so, so thick that the disciples can barely breathe. Now let's read verse 1. And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Now, the kingdom of God coming in power could be a reference to the transfiguration. It's about to happen in the next verse. But more likely, it's a, a reference to the larger events of Jesus' crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension, which the transfiguration points to. And we read in verse 2, after six days, that would be six days after Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, back in chapter 8, in verse 29, when they are in Caesarea Philippi. Here six days have gone by, and we read, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John. Not all the disciples, three of the disciples, his inner circle, if you will, his leadership team. And he led them up a high mountain, Likely Mount Hermon. Here's a picture of Mount Hermon. It was a mountain northern, dominating the landscape of the northern Israel. Uh, elevation about 9,100 feet. Uh, a beautiful place close to Caesarea Philippi where they have been. And we read they were alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Now, this is crazy. This is wild. I, I, who makes this kind of stuff up? I, it, it's really hard to. Luke tells us that in addition to the clothes, Jesus' face 
was shining. And Luke also adds that Jesus is discussing with Elijah and Moses his coming death and what's going to transpire in Jerusalem. Now let's go back to verse 5. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. You know, Jesus, it's really good I'm on your team. Jesus, it's really good that you have me. Now, I, I'm not bragging, but I, I, I'm just saying, Jesus, it's good that I'm here. Let us put up three shelters. Now, this goes back to the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles, the booths, where they would build shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say uh, because they were so frightened. Now, that's a great definition of, or description of what it means to open your mouth and insert your foot. You don't know what to say, so you say something. And that's Peter here. We got a little comic relief. But yet there's also Peter's trying to do something consistent with the Old Testament. And then we read verse 7, then a cloud appeared and enveloped them. And again, a cloud is a symbol of the presence of God. And a voice came from the cloud, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone that they had um, seen, or what they had seen, rather, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept this matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. They had no categories for this. And as a matter of fact, they're too scared to ask Jesus, what does rising from the dead mean? Because if they uh, affirm uh, some sort of rising, then that they're somehow affirming uh, 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 dying, Jesus being killed. So they divert the issue, and they ask about Old Testament prophecy. So they ask him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first. Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah, Elijah does come first. Now, Elijah in the Old Testament is an Old Testament picture or a type of John the Baptist who came before Jesus. Why then is it written, Jesus asked, that the Son of Man must suffer? Now, suffer, it was written in Isaiah 53, according to Jesus' interpretation of Isaiah 53, and be rejected. But I tell you, now notice this, Elijah has come. In other words, John the Baptist has come. And they have done to him everything they wish. They killed him. Just as it is written about him. And what I want you to note is Jesus' conversation right before, immediately before the transfiguration, is all about his death. And he comes out of this incredible, wild, crazy transfiguration, and the first thing Jesus is talking about again is his death. We're now in the second half of the Gospel of Mark, and Jesus will continue to anticipate, to predict, to describe, to talk about his death. Now let's go to verse 2, because in verse 2 we have a description of this transfiguration. Now the word transfiguration, our English word, comes from a Greek word that means metamorphosis. It's where we get that word from, our English word. It's transliterated into English from the Greek. So uh, Mark is telling us here that Jesus was metamorphosis or metamorphosized. I asked Rhonda last night, how do I say this? And she said, I don't know. And I looked it up and it wasn't much help. So don't send me an email because I know I'm 
butchering the English language here. The word means Jesus was changed. Uh, Jesus was transformed. And Mark's focus is on Jesus' clothes because the clothes picture, capture the transformation. Luke, in his account, tells us these clothes were as bright as a flash of lightning. It doesn't get much brighter than that. So here in one brief moment, what happens? The veil of Jesus' humanity is pulled back and the overwhelming brilliance of his deity shines through, punches through. And Jesus is seen in the splendor that every single star in the universe, every single angel has seen since creation. Jesus is now standing in his pre-incarnate as well as his future glory. And who would think, who would think a peasant, poor, blue-collar carpenter born to a teenage mother in the backwater village of Bethlehem is suddenly exploding with the transcendent glory of God that has been his reality through all eternity. And here in Mark chapter 9 and verse 2, the glory of God breaks through in the Son of God who is fully man and, and fully God. And the next time, by the way, any of us will see the glory of God is when we, were, when we are with Jesus in heaven. Let's talk about that for just a second. Look at this verse from Revelation chapter 21. And the city, that's a reference to the New Jerusalem, does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb, Jesus, is its lamp. So there's a day coming, in eternity future, no sun, no moon, because Jesus' glory will radiate light. And we will live as God's people in that light. And we will dwell in the presence of God and we will be completely and totally fulfilled and at rest and every tear will be wiped away because this is exactly what God has made us for to live in his glory. The glory of God is a mega theme in the Bible. And here in the transfiguration, we have a picture of it. But there's actually more. But before I go on, let me just appeal to you. This is why you've got to get your stick back in the fire. I mean, why are we so crabby? Why are we so short with people, so uh, small-minded? I mean, we are people made for glory. God is in the process of revealing his glory. He wants to give us glory. Uh, there's another slice aspect of this. And it's demonstrated in the presence of Elijah and Moses. Actually, Luke tells us that they also appear in glorious splendor. 
indicating, by the way, uh, and they have been dead collectively for 2,300 years when we come to the first century here, indicating, by the way, that when we as believers die and go to heaven, we will experience an incredible state of glory. They have returned in glorious splendor, Luke tells us. But the question is, why these two? Why Elijah? Why Moses? And the answer seems to be because Moses was synonymous with the Old Testament law and Elijah with the Old Testament prophets. And Elijah, according to Jesus in verse 13, as I've mentioned, is an Old Testament type of John the Baptist. And even though these two guys have been dead for 2,300 years together, their presence here, talking to Jesus, tells the disciples that the glory of the law and the glory of the prophets is now being fulfilled in the glory of Jesus. And so there's a continuity here, and we see that the Old Testament and the New Testament are friends because everything in both is about Jesus. Everything in both points to Jesus. After all, Jesus will say in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. And that fulfilling is what we see here in the presence of Elijah and Moses, these two great Old Testament leaders. Confirm, add to, speak to, enhance the glory of Jesus being revealed. Not only his deity, but what Jesus is saying about his suffering. And then, as I said, we have this little comic relief going on with Peter. Uh, Peter, always overzealous, is willing to say whatever comes to mind. Um, I have a problem of being just like Peter in that and regularly open mouth and insert my foot. But really, if you peel it away, you know what Peter's doing here? Peter wants to start the first small group. <laughs> hey, we've got, we got a shelter for you. I, I mean, think, this would be a wild group. Jesus, Moses, Elijah. And Peter's saying, you know, it's good. I'm going to be a part of that group. I'll add something. He wants to start a small group. Now, listen to me. He wants to indefinitely sustain a mountaintop experience. And you cannot, you cannot indefinitely sustain mountaintop experiences. Thankfully, God interrupts Peter. And in the next verse, we read, the cloud descends, and God speaks, and God says, this is my son, whom I love. This is my son, and I really, really love him. In other words, God is saying, Jesus is not just another man. Jesus is not just another prophet. Jesus is not of the same category as Moses and Elijah, uh, as other religions want us to believe even today? Jesus is totally different. Uh, Jesus is my son. Uh, that's a statement of Jesus' deity. Jesus is equal to God. Jesus is the God of glory revealed in humility in his first coming, and he will be revealed in glory in his second coming. And here that second coming glory is leaking through for a moment. 
So when God says, this is my son, he is contrasting Jesus with Moses and Elijah and making a clear statement of Jesus' divinity and a clear statement of divine approval. I love this guy. And now we come to God the Father's last three words, which are really the climax and the point of the transfiguration. And God says, listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Don't capitulate to glory, amnesia. Don't forget who Jesus is. And do not reject what Jesus is saying about his suffering, rejection, and death. Listen to him. God is saying, don't let Jesus' hard teaching on his death or what it means to be a disciple throw you. Yes, it's counterintuitive. Yes, it's countercultural. But in the kingdom of God, the path to glory is through the valley of suffering. Listen to him. that Jesus would die didn't make any sense to the disciples. It didn't make any sense to anybody in Israel. And 2,000 years later, it still doesn't make any sense to religious and or secular sensibilities. But because the disciples are struggling with the death of Jesus, they are given a vision of the glory of Jesus that they might listen to the words of Jesus. This transfiguration is a glory fix. It's a divine ratification because when we lose sight of the glory of God, we stop listening to God, especially when we're confused, especially when it's coming down hard, especially when it's a bad period. And man, that's when we don't want to deny ourselves and that's when we don't want to take up the cross. So let me land this by saying it this way. Your greatest need, my greatest need, is to listen to Jesus. Listen to him. To obey Jesus. To submit to Jesus to deny yourself, take up your cross and to follow Jesus, to say yes sir to Jesus when everything inside you wants to scream no sir. And parents, God has given you children so that through your example, through the stories of your life that you share with them, through your instruction, you interacting with them over God's word, they might learn as children to listen to Jesus. Let me be honest. I'm a pastor, becoming an older pastor. And I've been at this for a while now. And I should be better. But I'm not. My problem is that too often I care about my desires more than God's. 
way too often. So yeah, I, I, I'll deny myself and I'll take up my cross and some, but when it interferes with my desires, my agenda, my preferences, not so much. Not so much. Oh, I'll, I'll give myself to loving people. I'll give myself to sharing the gospel with people. Some. Disciple making. Some. Denying myself some. But not so much. I want to be a blank check for Jesus like I talked about last Sunday but I keep filling in the amount and say, Jesus, we're not going to go beyond this. Now, what is that? What in the world is that? What's that about? And what are we to do? We're all like that. We so often, too often, care about our desires more than we care about God's Word. And the point of the transfiguration is we are to listen to Jesus. And when Peter, who was there, unpacks the transfiguration later in the New Testament in one of the books that bears his name, he tells us this is exactly what the transformation means. It means listen to the God's Word. Listen to the Bible. Give yourself to obeying the Bible. It's the only antidote to glory amnesia. So let's conclude with this, but turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. Go to near the end of the New Testament. After Hebrews and before you get to 1 John, 2 Peter chapter 1. And I have taught on the transfiguration before, but, I, but I've never connected the transfiguration account in the Gospels with this account of Peter's testimony. Look at verse 16. We did not, we did not, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. This is a reference to the transfiguration. And Peter's point is, we didn't make this stuff up. This isn't a bunch of religious hocus-pocus. This has divine, supernatural origins. Now notice what he says next, verse 19. And we have heard, or we have the word of the prophets made more certain. And you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
Christianity has supernatural origins. That's the first paragraph we read. Then in the second, Peter is saying, so does God's word. On the mountain, God said, listen to Jesus. Here in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, listen to God's word. Study it. Memorize it. Drink it in. Let it wash over you. Live under it. Talk about it. Uh, Listen to sermons. Read books. Be a person of the word. You will do well to pay attention to it. And when you put these two beautiful paragraphs together on the heels of the revelation of God's glory to Peter, what Peter is saying, the way we get to God's glory is through God's word. So uh, let me ask you a couple of questions. Do you have a plan? Do you have a plan for reading God's word? Like reading through the Bible, which is what I do. And sometimes I move quickly, sometimes I move slowly. Or maybe it's reading a psalm a day or a chapter in the New Testament today. Do you have a plan? Do you have a place? A place where you can get alone and you can meet with Jesus and you can let the word of God wash over you and you can behold with eyes of faith the glory of Jesus. Do you have a plan? Do you have a place? Do you have a time? You're busy, I'm busy. But this is way too important to not have a time. And God, this is the time I'm meeting with you. When I'm praying, you will speak to me through your word. <laughs> you see, you and I tend to think if, if we're single, what we need is a spouse. And if we're married and we're going through marriage difficult, uh, difficulties, I've talked to a couple of people between services today that are, what we tend to think is, you know, I need a different spouse or a remade spouse or a repentant spouse. Or we think, man, I need a better job. I need a, a, a better um, set of circumstances. I need better friends. Um, you know, we live in Chicago. We do need better weather. We really need better weather. And it'll come, we'll get a little of it in July. (laughs) But the truth is, what you need is a better, deeper experience of God's glory. What I need is a better, deeper experience of the glory of the living God. Through the intake of God's word. So I want to plead with you today based on the authority of God's word to get your stick back in the fire. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And now as we worship, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged, that you would rebuke us where we need to be rebuked, that you would challenge us in the areas that we need that. And we ask God that you would give us grace, that you would visit us. Thank you for this moment. Thank you for the fact that we are right here, right now. And we love you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.